Welcome to the Writing Westward podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Rensing. Today we speak with journalist Leah Satilli about her Bundyville podcast and long-form journalism on the Bundy family and conflicts over public lands in the West. Thanks for listening. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. Each episode features a conversation with an author or scholar of new works that explore the North American West. We hope that our discussions will spark your curiosity to learn more and think differently about the North American West as a region and its peoples, environments, histories, literature, and so forth. You can follow Writing Westward on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West. You can listen on our website, writingwestward.org, or subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. We're listed on most major distributors. To learn more about the Red Center, our programming, live-streamed lectures, funding opportunities for research and events, or anything else, find us at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D-Center.byu.edu. You can get more regular updates about the Red Center on Facebook and Twitter as well. Thanks for listening. Leah Satilli is a freelance journalist whose features, profiles, investigations, and essays have been featured by the Washington Post, the New York Times Magazine, Playboy, Outside, The Atlantic, Vice, and several others. She is currently the T. Anthony Polner Distinguished Professor at the University of Montana School of Journalism. Today we will talk with her about her work as a journalist in the American West, and specifically as the reporter and host of the National Magazine Award-nominated podcast, Bundyville made in collaboration with longreads.com and Oregon Public Broadcasting. Bundyville has two seasons, each with a multi-chapter textual version on longreads.com and as a multi-episode podcast. In season one of Bundyville, Satilli set out to understand the circumstances surrounding the 2014 armed standoff between the Bundy ranching family and their supporters and federal officials in southeastern Nevada and the 2016 armed occupation of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge in Oregon, also involving members of the Bundy family, and the involvement of a broader cast of characters in the patriot, militia, and anti-government movements in the Western conflicts over public lands and federal jurisdiction over them. Season two of Bundyville, entitled The Remnant, zooms out further to more fully explore a number of related individuals and movement, some tangential and some directly tied to the Bundy family happenings from season one. These include anti-government violence, bombings, and a surprising coalescence of a Washington state legislator and religious communities calling for the creation of a whites-only state governed by strict biblical law. The longreads.com textual version is an example of exceptional long-form journalism. The podcast is not a dictation of that text, but is produced uniquely, featuring audio clips from interviews, speeches, and so forth. Satilli asks hard questions, many of them with no simple answers. She does not shy away from opening cans of worms, no matter how messy the outcome. These are important issues for Westerners to grapple with. The West is dominated by public lands. We need constructive dialogue concerning local versus federal jurisdiction over them. The evolving natures and tensions between extractive industries, ranching, recreation, and other forms of multi-use on these public lands. Unfortunately, public dialogue is often unconstructive. It's polemical. It is partisan. Thorough journalism like Satilli's provide a welcomed infusion of critical thinking, hard questions, data, and thorough investigation into public discourse. No matter what side of these issues Westerners fall on, we would all benefit from more reporting like Satilli's. Leah Satilli, thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
I have a lot of things I want to talk about, and I know listeners are going to be interested to dig through this with us together a bit. And it is a bit meta in that we are talking about your podcast on a podcast. <laughs> That's true. I guess it is. Uh, but uh, we're going to talk about kind of Western journalism more broadly, and I'd really like to get your input about how you approach this project and I kind of took this on as a journalist. Okay. Can you give to listeners who have not read the Bundyville long reads or uh, listened to the podcast, can you give us a 30 to 60 second thumbnail sketch of the two seasons? Yeah. So the first season was sort of inspired by my coverage of the courtroom proceedings that, that played out after the 2016 occupation of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. So basically those that 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 uh, was an event where the Bundy brothers from southern Nevada went up to Oregon and took over this federal property for 40 some days. And and so uh, after that trial ended in acquittals, which was very surprising to, I think, the Bundys and their attorneys as well. I just had a lot more questions about sort of where they got their inspiration for um, believing that the government, the federal government couldn't own land. So that was sort of what put me on the journey to do season one. And then season two um, was I answered a lot of those questions that I had in the first season, but there were a few more things that I wanted to know, um, particularly about a bombing that occurred in a tiny town in Nevada and whether or not that was related to the Patriot movement, which is kind of this catch-all term for, for what the Bundys are involved in. And um, and I wanted to know more about Lavoie Finnicum, who was the only person who died during that 2016 federal takeover. So that's kind of that's probably the that's probably the most concise I could say it. <laughs> I think that's pretty good. Okay. So I mean, you kind of already answered my next question about what kind of drew you into the project. So you were a uh, were you then working for Oregon Public Radio? No, not at all. Actually, I'm a freelancer, so um, wow. I'm totally a free agent. Uh, so what what drew you to the courtroom then? in the well, first place. So one of the the places that I write for and especially at that time I was writing consistently for the Washington Post. And so if things happened in the kind of Oregon, Washington, maybe Idaho region and it was interesting enough to rise to a national level, they would ask me to help. So um so when the Bundys were brought into court and they you know my editors in Washington knew that I lived in Portland, they just asked, you know, can you show up and kind of cover this thing and I just got so interested in it that that's when I just kept pitching stories like, well, today's going to be interesting because, you know, there's someone who claims to be a journalist on trial. And, you know, so so between all of these defendants that were on trial with the buddies, there was just like one story after another after another. So that's kind of where the whole thing began for me. So how long did you end up camped out at the courtroom then? Oh, my gosh, for months. I mean, because they were arrested in, let's see, uh, late January of 2016. The occupation continued for another 20 some odd days after the leadership was arrested. Um, so then when those people that were, were still at the, the occupation after them were arrested, there were more things to cover in February. So then you've got, you know, this gigantic pool of, of defendants and each of them has, you know, an arraignment. They have status hearings. There's all this stuff. So I wouldn't go for everything, but it kept me pretty busy consistently into the summer. Um, and then when the trial began in the fall, I, I was there pretty consistently for that, too. And along the way, you're then writing short pieces for the Post. Yeah, I was just kind of doing these, um, you know, smaller 
trial updates that would rise to kind of like a national level. But because I was so into the story and I wanted to keep working on it, I started pitching other outlets on kind of deeper profiles on some of the the occupiers. So one of the first stories that I did that was like a a deeper dive was about um, a man named David Fry, who was this 20 something year old guy who had traveled from Ohio to be a part of the occupation. So and he was also the last holdout at the Mm -hmm. refuge. So I wrote a deeper profile on him. So I kind of just figured out ways to sort of keep working on it, whether or not, you know, it was writing a profile, that profile was an outside magazine. Um, I just kind of kept, you know, pitching on it and kept working on it. So at what point in the process did you think, okay, we need to sit down and write a long, I mean, you wrote it for longreads.com, but kind of a a piece of long form journalism that's going to try to capture the whole story. Yeah. So what happened was after the trial ended in uh, the fall of 2016 in acquittals, the Bundys were not let free. So this we get into this into the podcast. But for people who don't know, the Bundys were also involved in a 2014 standoff on their Nevada ranch with um, officers from the Bureau of Land Management. So uh, that they, they were facing charges also in Nevada. So just as soon as they were, you know, had this sort of great victory in Oregon, they were hauled off to prison in Nevada to wait, await trial there. So I'd started pitching stories to all kinds of places on this family that was basically all the men in this prominent LDS family were going to be on trial. So, uh, I, I just, thought that was really interesting, knowing that, you know, um, LDS families are really uh, male centric and just sort of wondering, you know, how this would play out, this rural family being on trial in Las Vegas. But I could not get anyone to buy the story. <laughs> like mm. I wanted to do a long story on it, but it, but I didn't. I don't know if it was the pitch or what. But finally, I was like, well, you know, Longreads is doing their own original journalism, maybe they would be interested. So I got a green light from them to go to the trial in Nevada to kind of write this story. Pretty quickly, that trial ended in a mistrial um, for a variety of reasons we can get into. But when that ended, I just it didn't conclude anything. It didn't answer kind of all the questions that I came to figure out. So I called my editor in New York and I just said, hey, you know, this trial didn't happen the way that it did. There's so much here. I think I could write a series of long stories. What do you think? You know, anyone who's a freelancer knows they, an editor would usually say no. And <laughs> to the point I almost didn't even ask, but my editor, Mike Dang, he's, he was like, yeah, let's, let's do it. Let's do a series. And do you know anything about making a podcast? And I didn't. So, I so they, they writing. brought that up. Yeah. And so, you know, I was like, I, I listen to podcasts. I mean, I would call myself an avid podcast consumer. So I just said, you know, I don't know, but I can figure it out <laughs> because I'm not going to say no to <laughs> You're like bl- totally bluffing. Yeah. So, uh, so I went to, um, because I'm based in Portland, uh, Oregon public broadcasting. I mean, their coverage along with the Oregonian, I mean, those two outlets really owned the, coverage of the standoff because it, it, in 2016, it just went on for 40 days, but they were constantly covering it and finding new angles. So I just went to them and said, Hey, you know, I know you guys have an interest in this story. I've got this podcast idea. Could I partner with you and we could figure out how to do it together. And that's kind of how it happened. 
Yeah, because through a lot of the podcasts, there's a, what's the name of the producer who's with you for a lot of it? Is it Ryan? Ryan Haas, yep. So he's um an OPB producer. He's an editor. Yeah, he's an editor. editor at OPB. And we'd actually, we'd traded some messages on Twitter before, but we had never met before. Um, So it was actually, I mean, really kind of amazing because we not only clicked right away, but we just became fast friends. And I think that had we not had, I think, such a similar approach to journalism and had he not been the kind of editor on the ground that I needed, you know, that long reads couldn't be because they were so far away and, and whatever. Um, I think it just wouldn't have been the project that it turned into. Wow. So when you then kind of officially signed with long reads and partnering with Oregon public broadcasting at that point, how much of the research and interviews and and material had you already gathered? I'd done a lot. So what's interesting about the Patriot movement is the people who are in it put a lot online. So like they live stream pointless meetings, you know, and, and things that were happening like at the refuge. So there was sort of this great archive of footage and like material that I had had been working with online. And um, I'd done a ton of research just based on these different profiles I'd been writing on the occupiers and on the Bundys. But, you know, when we started that first season, I actually didn't have an interview with Cliven Bundy, the, the patriarch of this family who led the 2014 standoff and, you know, arguably started this whole thing. Um, but I kind of didn't think I needed it. I just thought, well, you know, we can kind of put something together with, what's online and what I've done already. So I had done some reporting and I'd actually written the very first Bundyville story. Um, and then as we got further into making the audio project and I learned that, you know, making a good podcast is not just converting a long story into an audio one. Like it's a completely form, different form of writing. It's a different form, you know, media. Uh, so I uh, had to go back and, and really kind of start doing more reporting. So as as we were making Bundyville, I was doing a lot of the reporting. Hmm. And that's something I was curious as I was, um, you know, as I had read through the long reads, and then I was, as, as I was listening to the podcast, when I first went into it, I thought, oh, this is going to be a, a story that Leah is going to tell from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be a nice narrative, just kind of, you know, chronological flow. Um, and then I quickly realized my Wait, is she, was she having to do some of the writing of this concurrently with the reporting and the conducting yes. of interviews? And Yes, yeah. I, and I, I'm curious, like, did you have some things written and then meanwhile you would conduct a new interview that would force you to then fully rewrite or reinsert new materials back in? Just how, how did this, show us how the sausage was made a bit here. It's it's a flawed process. I think that would be uh, generous. But the so the first season kind of played out a little bit differently. Like I said, I'd written that first story um, because I thought I was just going to write one story um, until I pitched the series. So um, I'd written that, and then as I as I looked at okay, this is going to be four long pieces. You know, what is that arc going to look like? Just kind of thinking about you know, a narrative arc as a whole of the four stories that would keep people reading and keep it interesting, but also the narrative arc of each individual story. So as I sort of figured that out, I actually did have to go back and kind of rewrite that first story, which, you know, was frustrating. But in the end, it was it was what needed to happen. That being chapter one, a war in the desert about kind of the Nevada standoff. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just, just knowing, okay, this needs to be kind of a recap piece of everything that's gone on while also bringing in the trial in Oregon and the trial in Nevada and my experiences in Las Vegas and um, out by the ranch and that kind of thing. So, um, so pr- pretty much from there forward, I would do the reporting, write the long piece and then work with Ryan and our, we have other, two other producers that helped on it. Uh, Peter Frickwright and Robbie Carver, they host the outside magazine podcast. Mm, okay. So the, between Peter, Ryan and Robbie, I was kind of learning how to make what I had written into radio and, you know, what kind of sound we needed to drive that. So I think there's like a big difference between the first season and the second season, because with the first you know, it's got a lot of that archival video and things like that, plus some, you know, original interviews and on the on the ground work. But the second season, you know, we knew it was going to be a podcast from the very beginning. So I think it's got a different tone to it. It's yeah, very there's a lot more interviews. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, so, you know, I was happy that the narration of, you know, my narration of the first season seemed to draw people in enough to get them to listen to the second season, which I think is a little bit more of a, you know, uh, exciting podcast. So that's kind of how it went down. A lot of what journalists do is you know, ask questions. And I was struck maybe more so in the first season that you seem to be putting kind of your, your journalistic methodology on the table a lot, mm-hmm. you know, bring, bringing to the listener or the reader, like the questions that you had and then trying to unpack and, and, and dig through them together. Mm-hmm. Was that something you kind of planned out or is that just a function of how you were yourself trying to understand this story in real time, kind of as you were researching and writing? It's a, I mean, it's a little bit of both. When I had my very first meeting with Ryan Hass and Peter and Robbie and then Anna Griffin, who is an, uh, the news editor at OPP or news director at OPP, um, we all sat down and they were kind of asking me, you know, we need a character to drive this thing. And I was like, well, yeah, we have it. It's Clive and Bundy and Ammon Bundy. But the more we talked about it, they kind of asked, you know, are you willing to be the character that drives this whole thing? And, you know, mm. I'm no stranger to mining my own personal life for my writing. <laughs> so like I think a lot of female journalists are. So I, uh, was like, sure. Yeah. I don't, I, that's fine. And, um, I guess I didn't realize I had kind of a unique process until I made Bundyville. I, th- I think I thought that everybody made journalism the way that I did. But, um, you know, I think I also just was fine with being a little bit of a, you know, a- a- admitting like I have questions that maybe are dumb or that I don't understand or but but it turned out those were questions I think a lot of people in the audience, the Bundyville audience had too. like, why, how does someone come to believe what they believe about, yeah. you know, that kind of thing where maybe it seemed like after covering it for a year, I would have answered that question. But, you know, I certainly heard the Bundys talk ad nauseum about their beliefs about the federal government. But I'm like, yeah, but but still, how, <laughs> like, how did you get that idea? Where where did you hear that for the first time? So. That's yeah. part of what I think makes it engaging. Sometimes when you're reading or, you know, listening to journalist pieces and they pose questions, you can tell that they already have all the answers. And so, the, you know, posing the question is a little bit disingenuous um, mm-hmm. and it feels kind of like a setup. Uh, whereas it, in what you produced, uh, I think the listener feels all along like that we're in on 
the process with you, which I think is exciting. And you did yeah. ask a lot of the exact same questions, be they uh, really smart questions or sometimes, you know, questions that ended up not leading anywhere. Mm-hmm. But it is in, makes for engaging journalism when uh, the, the journalist admits that they're as confused about this as uh, the listener is. Yeah, I mean, I, I just I, I think that that's a lot of my goal. Like when I became a freelancer, it was because I just wanted to be able to, like, think deeply about things. But also, I think journalism is really fun and it does play out in really exciting ways sometimes for me. I don't know if that's just my process or the fact that I'm willing to get a lot more obsessed with things maybe for a lot longer than most people. But yeah, I mean, it it is the way that it, like you say, you know, there are questions in it that just kind of lead me nowhere. um, Whereas there are other ones that lead me definitely somewhere and, and places I don't think other journalists found. And that was really true to form, like particularly season two, the way that that plays out is exactly as I reported it. Like we have a um, a line, I think at the last episode where I say something, you know, with this season half finished and like, you know, <laughs> be desperate to sort of find these public records. Um, that really is what happened. Like Peter and Robbie and Ryan kept saying, well, what's the end? And I'm like, I, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea what the end of this series is going to be. So I like that honesty. I'm as a researcher and a scholar myself. I know that the deeper you get into a story, the more you realize um, what a mess it is and how little you understand. So when I sure. see someone present uh, a story or research and it's all tied up nicely with a little bow, um, I'm immediately skeptical because yeah. I know that nothing <laughs> ties up that neatly. So mm-hmm. the fact that you left a lot of things kind of open-ended and there's lots of hanging questions, that strikes me as much more authentic and and believable than someone who tries to say they figured it all out. Because yeah, there's no figuring it all out. Exactly. And, I, you know, I've never been one to kind of put on airs about, like, my own intelligence. Like, I, I think I, like, I operate from this, I don't know, a corner of the room sometimes I feel like in journalism where I'm like, I'm sorry, is this a dumb question? Like, I just that's sort of how I am. I don't know why I'm like that, but it did it did work for this. So I don't know that it would work for every story. But for this, I think it just because it is uh, so bizarre that, you know, the whole thing, the whole movement is has this sort of bizarre element to it. And I think that you know, a lot of people are like, this is crazy. You know, these people are crazy and I just don't need to pay attention to them. But I have sort of this long track record of writing about people who have been kind of disregarded. So I think that as soon as I saw that this was another one of those stories that these questions I had hadn't been answered because to a point journalists either had to disregard them because they had to move on to a different story or um, they just, you know, personally didn't care. That's when I was like, okay, this is this is sort of a traditional story that I would work on. Mm. So others had you know, perhaps cast it aside, like this is too bonkers, it's too out there. It's uh... Yeah, where there's no real greater takeaway that you know society can learn from. Mm. Well, let me ask you this about your journalism, and I'm actually going to quote you. Um, <laughs> uh, kind of about this tension between telling a good story and delivering facts. So in, I think it's it was in season one, I think it's at the end of season one, in the last episode, you Speaking about the Bundys and some of the associated movements and how they tell their own story, how they explain their interpretation of the Constitution and all these various things, um, you say, 
They pick selective details from actual facts and tell the story they want to tell. And then a little bit later you say, we all do that to an extent, right? So can you walk us through kind of this tension? Because a lot of what they say, it is based in fact, but they're just taking out very selective details from those facts to to write the narrative that they want to write. But are you admitting that as a journalist, you do that too, to some extent? So I'm curious how you work through that and then how you maintain, you know, kind of your journalistic integrity. How do you tell a good story without being overly selective of facts and slanting it one way or the other? Mm, I think it's a great question. I, I think, you know, in that line, I was sort of thinking about our own personal mythologies that we tell just as people, you know, uh, how important something rises in our own personal history that may, you know, other people may not have agreed upon, I guess, like, I, 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 that's sort of an, I don't know, ephemeral way of saying it. But, you know, I noticed with the Bundys, particularly in that first season, after I sat down with Cliven and Ryan Bundy um, at their house, was, you know, they were very easy people for me to talk to for hours. I mean, I think Ryan and I sat there for three hours talking to them. And, um, it was a good conversation. Um, and that's something that that is true throughout both seasons is this sort of ability to really sit down and like talk to people, even though um, what they were saying didn't always make sense to me or or I could tell it wasn't based in fact. But I think that line particularly was speaking to this interpretation of LDS scripture that that the Bundys sort of um, operate from. So they've sort of picked and choose the right, the, the things that affirm their anti-government worldview um, and that they are these sort of saviors of the constitution. They've, they've decided that in their mind. Whereas I think that probably anyone within their uh, church would say, you know, that's not exactly what you, the teachings are saying. Like that's you taking liberties with them. So I think that, you know, I tried to think about, you know, um, I don't think I take liberties as a journalist, but I do think that I just, you know, just in operating in my own life or, or other people hearing about the way they tell their own personal biographies, I guess they may trump up other details that um, I don't know that don't that aren't, maybe aren't necessarily like perfectly mm -hmm. authentic to reality. Yeah. Does that yeah. make sense? I guess the big question would be, I think a lot of our listeners are Westerners. And this is a podcast about Western writing and Western issues. And it's fairly clear why the Bundys, this sage, sagebrush rebellion redux, um, why this matters to the West. Mm. But I'm curious um, about why it matters perhaps more broadly, um, not just, not just to the West, but why, why should people be, why, why should we care about this? Well, I think, you know, yeah, for the obvious reasons, you know, the majority of the American West is public land managed by the federal government. Um, and I think the Bundys show some of the conflict that people out West feel about the government running big parts of their states. Um, I think also it speaks to something that's definitely in the conversation now and has been for a while is just this sort of evolution away from extractive industries like logging and mining and um, how those collide with environmental uh, regulations and, you know, outdoor recreationists and sort of this 
idea of of asking the question like who owns the West and who is the West for, um, which I think you know is is something we just hear about again and again and again. Uh, so I th- so I think that's you know one thing. My goal with Bundyville was to get people beyond the West mm-hmm. to care, which I felt like you know the coverage that I read, like I said before, it seems slightly dismissive or um, jokey. And, you know, of course, like I'm, I'm, you know, one to admit there are things about the story that are very funny and should be laughed at. Like, but why I think people should care is that in both cases, 2014 at Bundy Ranch and 2016 at the occupation, you had people with pretty radical beliefs about the government standing off with the government at, in some cases, Armed. pointing guns yeah. at them to get what they wanted. <clears throat> so when those officers uh, in 2014 had to back away from this crowd of people um, that were heavily armed, including people that were in um, an elevated position with sniper rifles pointed at these few officers that were there to repossess the Bundy's cattle. Uh, I think that that, in my mind, sort of set a precedent for people with problems with the government to say, hey, I could put a gun at a federal agent and get what I want. And when the Bundy's and, and their acolytes didn't see charges for a couple of years for that standoff, I think, I think it really gave them a lot of permission. And it, and it was sort of was like this, you know, uh, breath of air into the lungs of the Patriot movement, I think to be like, Hey, maybe we're on to something. So it emboldened them. And um, yeah, 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 definitely. So in, you know, when the standoff happened in Oregon as well, I mean, this is a refuge that is extremely rural. I mean, it's, it's out in the middle of nowhere. Um, so, you know, it wasn't like the buddies came into, you know, an urban or or even, you know, semi-urban area and, you know, brought all these people and, you know, had this armed standoff. It was in this really rural area. And I think that that was, in a way, I mean, they brought attention to a place and a county that has struggled with how to, um, you know, bring like bring all these different parties together at the table and come away with a solution of who gets to use this land and what and for what purpose. So, um, you know, but really that that violence element, I think, is what makes people and should make people care far beyond yeah. the West. I also think there's when we talk about people in the West versus not in the West, I think part of actually what we're talking about is what you kind of already mentioned, maybe a little bit of a rural urban divide. I know a lot of, mm-hmm. I mean, per capita, the West is the most urbanized population. Um, more Westerners mm-hmm. live in urban places than not urban compared to any other region in the United States. So when we talk about Westerners, um, demographically, we're actually talking about urbanites. But when we say the mm-hmm. word Westerners, that's not who we're referring to, right? Um, right and so right, right. when we talk about public lands, about how they're managed, about as you say this, and for some regions, a shift from extractive industries to recreation and other ways of using these public lands. We are talking not about an east versus west tension, but of a, a urban versus rural. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, my own uh, ignorance about that very issue was a lot of what drove my interest in this story. So, 
you know, when when the Bundys showed up to, to the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge on a you know cold January morning in, in 2016, I did not know where that refuge was. Uh, you know, I lived in Oregon almost my entire life. I'd never even mm-hmm. heard of it. Um, and then, and then I, you know, people were saying public lands, public lands, and and I kind of looked at my husband and was like, public, what is that? Is that what we where we go hiking all the time? Like there was so much that. I think I, as an urban, a largely urban uh, Westerner, I, there was so much I took for granted that like I didn't even know the real story about this, this, you know, these vast forests and mountains that I'd been around my whole life. Uh, I just assumed, yeah, yeah, they're there and that's why we live here. And, and I didn't really think beyond that. So I think my relative ignorance about these issues. And, you know, all of a sudden I'm, you know, falling down these holes of, of learning about, you know, uh, the federal land policy and management <laughs> act in the 1970s and stuff and being like, no way. Oh, okay. Yeah. Lot, yeah. So just, it, it, I think it just, I had to maybe know, like start fresh, I think to, in order to, for it to be a compelling and exciting story. Yeah, I mean, to me. For a lot of us in the West, we live in cities and we may have a relationship with public lands. We may not call them that. Um, but you know, these are the places mm-hmm. where we go hiking, and, you know, camping, and we have this exactly. you know, recreation, more recreation based relationship with them, forgetting that there are people who live there and whose relationship mm-hmm. is one of making their living on those lands. And, and I think these two, these two, constituencies uh don't do not communicate well about their relationships with the with the very same lands and you know on both sides often some very valid reasons of how they'd like to manage one way or the other yeah i mean i i i think you're it is it is funny like i'd never i think before 2016 had a lot of these you know post 2016 conversations that i've been having but you know i do think about the first protest that I ever went to was when I was like 16 years old. Yeah, I grew up in Portland and I went to a protest at the Forest Service office. I cannot tell you really what it was for. <laughs> I don't think that mattered to me at the time. I think I just thought it was cool to protest. But I do remember there being an issue over logging um, and uh, a, a sort of like a pristine forest in the Eugene, Oregon area that my friends were, were, you know, very jacked up about and stuff. So what was funny to me was I kept thinking about, you know, I might be the only journalist who, who actually protested the Forest <laughs> Service, like that's, you know, involved in this. Uh, like I say, I don't, I don't, I don't know why, but it was important to me. Well, that gives you some very different street credentials then. Yeah. Um, you know, my. My wife actually got caught at the Bundy standoff. She was driving. In 2014? Yeah, she was driving from Phoenix back up here to Utah with two very young children in the car. Oh, my. And um, there's a a, standstill on the freeway around Mesquite, and she calls me and is like, what is going on? Is there a wreck? And so I get online, and I'm digging around, and... Then I find a news alert about an armed standoff, and I called her and I said, I have bad news. Um, there's an armed standoff with some ranchers or something, and uh, and I, I mean, the, the reporting at that point, there wasn't a lot of information. Right. And so trying to – she was just mad because she had two kids who needed to use the bathroom, and she was stuck <laughs> in, in the middle of the desert for two hours. And then she drove by, and there were people with um, assault rifles and sniper rifles 
um, standing wow. on the side of the road, which she found really terrifying. Um, yeah. But again, uh, we both then had a kind of and you know, I knew a lot about public lands and the Sage Rush Rebellion, so I automatically understood, oh, okay, I see where this fits. I understand hmm. the dy- dynamics of what's going on. My wife is a lifelong Westerner. She's never lived anywhere but the West. Hmm. But there, there's then an education of trying to explain, well, here's these broader issues that are happening in rural America. Um, yeah. I mean, I remember seeing those headlines from, from you know, that standoff and, sort of like scratching my head and what why like about weird. cattle and you desert know? tortoises like what yeah what is going like, on here it just seems so crazy that I just kind of moved on you know and um I, I it, what was what was interesting and I talk about this a bit in the second season of Bundyville is that I had an interest already in a lot of those groups that that convened there at, at Bundy Ranch like militia groups and things like that but I just didn't know from the coverage that that's what it was. I just thought, Oh, here's this one rancher and he's doing something weird. And that was that for me. So yeah, it was a, it it was a story I really frankly ignored when I saw it. Yeah. Um, well in season two, you get, you, you kind of zoom way out and look Mm -hmm. at these broader worlds of patriot movements, militia movements, um, some religious movements that are talking about having their own kind of breakaway, autonomous independent regions to live a kind of very specific form of Christianity apart from the U.S. federal government. I mean, kind of a lot of much um, bigger issues. And what struck me is that not just with the Bundys, but with those up in Stevens County, Washington. Marble Community Fellowship. Yeah, uh, with with Mm -hmm. them and and so many of these others, and then kind of just the broader patriot movement, is that the lines that they've drawn in the sand are so extreme. Um, I mean, the Bundys are saying, no, like the federal government has no jurisdiction over these public lands. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then there's the, the sovereign citizen movement where people are saying, you know, I, I the federal government has no jurisdiction over me as an individual. Right. These positions are so extreme that as I'm trying to think about, okay, well, what's the way forward? Is there room for productive dialogue for the BLM to invite people to come to the table and to sit down and try to come up with some compromises? With such extreme positions staked out, is there any way forward? Can there be productive dialogue? Are there compromises to be had? Man, that is a great question. It's That's what worries that, me looking yeah. forward. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know that I can answer that. I mean, I think that one thing that that um, people should perhaps take comfort in is that, you know, the movement that congealed around the Bundys and their ideas is not huge. Um, this is evidenced in like during the 2016 standoff at the refuge, there were so few ranchers that came to their side. It was, you know, I think there were maybe two that that actually came to the refuge. Um, so it was so. So I think like you talk to ranchers around the American West and they will say those people are crazy. That's not that's that is that's not us. You know, they're common criminals yeah. like they're 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 actually Clive and Bundy by not paying his grazing fees to the Bureau of Land Management for 20 plus years. That's just stealing. So. So I think that that's the, the the sentiment. And I think particularly it was interesting that they went to Harney County, Oregon, for that standoff, because Harney C- County is sort of this place that has worked hard to get 
all these different parties at the table and figure out solutions. And, um, you know, they'll say it's not perfect. What they had come up with before the Bundys got there wasn't perfect, but they were working towards solutions. And when the Bundys came in and, and pulled this, you know, 41 day standoff, um, it set the county back. And I, and I think people there would even say today that it, that it's, you know, they're still feeling that, um, the division that that put into their community that that wasn't there before it exaggerated the, the divide that that was there. So, you know, I, I, but I think that there is a way forward in that sense, because this is not the prominent ideology. But I think it's important for people to understand that, you know, when you see like the people who are talking about the this liberty state movement in Washington or um, you know, the people talking about public lands around the Bundys, they generally are not people that are um land managers at all. Like they're they're not using public land. They are simply looking for a confrontation with the federal government. So they're, you know, a member of a anti-government militia or they are a sovereign citizen and they believe the government has no right to tell people what to do at all. Um, th- but those are a minority. And the ranch just happens to be the battleground they choose to have their fight on. In a way. Yeah. I mean, it's like the, the, you know, the latest Ruby Ridge or the mm-hmm. latest, you know, Waco, it's like a stage and the Bundy's sort of in a way have become this sort of perfect character for people with all these disparate ideas to rally around. So I think you'll talk to um, experts on extremism and they'll say, you know, before the Bundys were around, there were sagebrush rebels, you know, kind of over here and militias over here and, you know, sovereign citizens over here and white supremacists over here. But the Bundys kind of created this umbrella for them to all gather under mm-hmm. it, that they, you know, it's kind of like a Venn diagram. Like they all sort of have intersecting beliefs while also having beliefs that, you know, like, for example, the Bundys, uh, I would not say are white supremacists. But they will welcome white supremacists into their mix to help forward their own goals. Yeah, they all which, have, yeah, they yeah. all have something they share right. that they can get on board with. Right. Um, I mean, what worries me, and not to compare them to the Soviet Union because I don't think they'd appreciate that, but um, <laughs> back during the Cold War, um, a lot of foreign policy experts talking about the Soviets said that you know that there was no negotiating with the Soviets because the, their state. And their their domestic policy required an enemy, required an antagonist. There had to be someone that they were propped up against, someone that they were fighting against. Otherwise, they couldn't justify their their, their existence, really. And so there was no really making – like the Soviet Union was not interested in making peace, is what some people argued. Because then what justification was there for anything they were doing you know, domestically? Mm-hmm. And – you know, as I read and listen about the Patriot movements and some of these other groups that are kind of coalescing around the Bundys, I wonder if some of them have uh, are operating similarly. Like if the federal government suddenly came to the table and wanted to completely play nice, it would take all the wind out of their sails. They, what For what reason would their uh, movement exist? I don't know if they really necessarily want a solution other than the federal government ceasing to exist, which isn't going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's a, a really astute comparison. I think that they... Um, you know, when you, when you look at some of the militia folks that are involved in the Bundy's movement, yeah, I mean, the whole reason they exist is because they are fired up about 
the second amendment and their firearms and, you know, um, they need an enemy, I think, even to exist. I think that that's absolutely right on. And and I also think that, you know, even in moments of relative sanity in, in the 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 Bundy's actions or words, um, for example, Ammon Bundy last year, which is one of Cliven's sons, who was the sort of de facto leader of the 2016 occupation, he was in the news because he really divided with President Trump over this supposed migrant caravan that was approaching the southern border. And he took to Facebook and said, you know, we need to be compassionate. These are people who should be welcomed into our midst because they need help and their governments are oppressing them. And 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 he really made a lot of enemies with that statement. A lot of people said, wait a second, like this is not we thought you were the guy we were standing with that, that embodied our values and yada, yada. So um, but those moments like that have been few and far between. I think that it, it gets away from the sort of narrative of the the government is this big bad guy that's coming to get you. Um, and that, you know, with the Bundys in particular, that really comes from that family has lived in an area of the country for a long time where the government has screwed people, frankly. Yeah. And so, you know, with nuclear testing and not telling people in that specific town where the Bundys lived that they were, you know, there was nuclear fallout falling on their town and people were getting sick. And so when they say they don't like the government, it comes from things like that. It comes from, you know, their Mormon ancestors, being oppressed for their religious beliefs and and the LDS people coming westward to get away from the government. Um, so so it's like so for the Bundys specifically, like their enemy is one. I don't want to say it's justified, but there's a story behind it, whereas a lot of people within the movement, you know, uh, lost a home maybe during the financial crisis or um, saw their jobs at a mine or, uh, you know, uh, logging jobs go away. It's, it's a much more recent impetus to create this hate and, and this sort of enemy figure. But in both cases, there are, again, one reason why journalists shouldn't just brush these stories and people off without really thinking seriously about them, but there are real grievances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, absolutely. Real problems. Um, now maybe, we may not agree with uh, where they've then taken it, but. Um... Right. And that was, you know, I think that there were a lot of people who, you know, automatically did not want to listen or read Bundyville because they had just, you know, decided what they wanted to believe about the Bundys. Um, what I was trying to do was just understand, like, what creates that anger, you know, just because that because to stand up and point a gun at the government or lead people to point a gun at the government. That's to me takes a lot. Uh, and so, so I wanted to, you know, know what that story was, but a lot of people really didn't want to hear it. They did not want to hear why the Bundys um, maybe were angry. Um, so hmm. that whatever that's worth. So um, what is the reaction reception then? Um, I don't know if you're still in contact with, Bundy's or other of these people that you interviewed, but they, they knew you were a journalist. They knew that you were going to be publishing uh, something and talking about them. Has there been any reaction? Um, I wouldn't say that uh, 
there like with season one um after it came out yeah i didn't hear anything from clive and buddy and and his sons but later i tried to do a follow-up story um I can't remember what it was about. It may have been about the migrant caravan. And I reached out to Ryan Bundy and he said, you know, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. Like you're biased and you're eventually, you're, you know, essentially you're fake news kind of thing. Mm. Um, and it's been, had like you been that. anticipating that though? Yeah. I mean, I think so. I, 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 you know, one of the things I tell my journalism students and I think people told me when I was a student is, you know, a big part of the job is to tell things as they are, you know, and that reporting supports that. But when you hold a mirror up to someone's face, they a lot of times don't like what they see. And so I wasn't expecting that that they were you know, going to be like, wow, you really got us right or something. <laughs> um, you know, I think there, I did operate a bit from a hope that maybe, you know, when they saw the totality of the information, um, maybe it would change someone's mind and it may have, I don't know that I would hear that. Um, I did speak to Ammon Bundy about that migrant caravan story. And I said, you know, I did that podcast Bundyville and he said, Oh yeah, I listened to it. I liked it. Oh. <laughs> so that surprised me. I, I don't know that he listened to the whole thing, but, um, and then as far as the second season goes, you know, there have been people, uh, along the way there that haven't been, um, real thrilled with the the coverage um particularly the finicum family uh, yeah you know and that's a family that's dealing with real grief and um i think uh you know i uncovered a lot of things about lavoy finicum who was this rancher who was killed during the 2016 standoff up there in oregon um you know when i when i found all the sort of information about his life and put it together uh, I think it will provide a clarity for a lot of people. And like I say, I'm not going to hear from the people I think that that maybe were like, oh, I had an aha moment because of this or this helps, you know, uh, fill out his story. But, I, you know, I have heard from the family and um, in some cases they were extremely kind and compassionate about their uh, dislike of the coverage, <laughs> um, which I appreciated. And, you know, particularly with Guy Finnecombe, Lavoie's brother, yeah, yeah. Uh, he, you know, really, he wrote you know, one of the kindest letters I think I've gotten as a journalist, you know, I've been a journalist for like 15 years. And he just said, you know, I disagree with, with your portrayal, even though, you know, so much of what he agreed with was on audio. And I'm not sure how you can take issue with, someone's own words like in a way he took issue with his own words but he was so kind about it mm. <laughs> <laughs> and it said you know if you're ever by my home please come back i would love to have another conversation and and that is not been the case in in most cases especially with uh jeanette finnicum lavoy's wife she's you know and his children have not been thrilled with bundyville but as you said you know when you hold that mirror up um but especially you know i mean not to go back and you know to go Back to that quote from that I mentioned earlier, you know, taking selective details from actual facts to tell a story, right? So Lavoie Finnicum's family or the Bundy's brothers, you know, have told certain stories um, about their own personal biographies. And your deep reporting shows a much complicated and bigger story, mm -hmm. uh, which in a way maybe undermines, you know, uh, Lavoie Finnicum's wife is traveling about airing a documentary and speaking with people about her husband, right? Right, right. And, and, and there's a certain and, story she's telling there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but, you know, I, 
you would say this to her and I would say it to anybody like I am unable to understand what pain she feels from losing her husband and for that family to lose this this man who was so important to so many of the kids lives foster kids you know his own kids people in his community um regardless of what he believed regardless of how you know his extreme his beliefs became after he went to Bundy Ranch and you know regardless of whether or not he had a gun in his jacket um as they say uh when he was shot and killed you know there's just real emotion there yeah. and and that is the part that is difficult for me is I do feel like, you know, everyone deserves to have that story told um, of that, you know, there's real pain in yeah. his loss too. whether or not he was an extremist or, you know, became this martyr figure. Hmm. I don't want to take too much more of your time, but um, what uh, what does the future hold for you, for Bundyville, uh, you know, for for your Western journalism and reporting on these issues? It's a great question. I mean, I um, have said this before, but uh, I did not think that I would make a season two at this time last year. I had no plans to do it. I probably would have groaned and moaned about the, <laughs> an idea of it. And here we made a second season that I'm really proud of. So I can't say that, you know, definitively, I know I won't make a third season right now. I don't have plans to, but I do feel like I have a unique knowledge about extremist groups in the American West. and um, you know, these public lands fights and, and uh, a lot of other information that I think I'll tease out into other long stories um, for some of the magazines that I work for and that kind of thing, because I think it continues to be relevant. I think there um, continues to be a real lack of journalists in the West. And, you know, this is the place that I love and, and I want to write about. So, um, yeah, I've got a pretty long list of stories <laughs> I need to get to. <laughs> well, I'm so, sure, you know, there may be Event, I mean, hopefully not more standoffs and things, but events that happen that will mm -hmm. that will uh, bring you in for your expertise. But are there kind of any big, long-standing questions that are still hanging out there that you are hoping to have a chance to explore? Yeah, I think that one thing that it that you know would apply to any story any journalist works on is like who is pulling the strings here i continue to think that there are are people i have not discovered or organizations i have not discovered that um are behind you know um some of the people that we talk about in season two you know the marvel community fellowship um matt representative matt shea uh this liberty state movement um you know all kinds of different things like that i think there are more people above them that I, that are, you know, have an agenda. And I, and I want to know more about where, um, where these ideas that, you know, we hear about within the movement are, are coming from. Um, they may not be coming from anyone, but you know, if they are, I'd like to figure out who that is. Hmm. Well, it sounds a little conspiratorial, but yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> who is the, the shadow anti-government, right, right? right? The, the deep anti-state. I don't know what we would call it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I do. Uh, I did write one ending actually for Bundyville before I knew um, where it was going to go in the second season about, you know, um, you work on this story long enough and all of a sudden you start to feel like a conspiracy theorist, too. Like and you have to I think as a journalist, um, you can have sort of like a, a guiding hypothetical question that you can go with but you know 
it, it that's where it, it, it takes it. Uh, you take the jump from conspiracy theory to journalism is, is uh-huh. that conspiracy theories, I think, are these sort of hypotheses that are not proven. And um, yeah, there were plenty of those where I, you know, would be up in the middle of the night and I'd send, you know, Ryan has a message and say, oh, I have this idea. <laughs> you know, And I'm like, I'm starting to sound crazy. <laughs> well, I hope he's archived all of your late night texts <laughs> I'm sure, uh, to, I'm sure to document yeah. as you lo- slowly lost your mind. Yes. Yes. There's a lot of that. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for talking with us. Um, I'm yeah. really hopeful that, um, you know, other regional journalists are inspired, um, you know, by, by your work, by, you know, by the, the success that it's had. And that it proves that there is an audience for really messy, in-depth journalism, which, I mean, not just in the West, but I think we need desperately around the country. Yeah, absolutely. Especially for, yeah, especially for Western audiences, which sometimes is a region that, that the national media, you know, kind of moves over quickly. And falls to kind of these like caricatures, like, oh, yeah. these people have cowboy hats on. They must be cowboys. And it's like, come on. You know, I think anybody who's lived in the West knows that's not that's not true. You know, it's not a costume. It's a it's a it's a lifestyle and and, and that kind of thing. But, yeah, no, I, I'm thanks for having me on. And, and I do. Um, you know, my goal has always been to not have to move to a big urban city center like L.A. or New York to do journalism. I, I do believe that they're. Um, there are stories everywhere and that's my goal is to just, you know, continue to stay in my home and understand why it is the way it is. Well, I wish you the best of luck with it. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. You too. Thanks for listening to this episode. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. You can find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Anderson with an O, dot com. I'll include a link in the episode description. Besides subscribing to the podcast, you can receive regular updates about upcoming episodes by following on Facebook or Twitter. My name is Brennan Rensink, and I serve here as the podcast host, producer, sound engineer, uh, and pretty much everything else. So if you have any praise or critiques... You should probably just send them my way. I'm associate director of the Red Center and an associate professor of history here at Brigham Young University. Feel free to contact me if you have any questions about the podcast, the Red Center, our live-streamed lectures and events, funding opportunities, or anything else. If you have books you think I should consider for an episode, please send them my way. One last plug, I'm also the project manager and general editor of a great digital public history project hosted here at the Red Center called Intermountain Histories. You can check it out by visiting www.intermountainhistories.org or download the free mobile app by searching Intermountain Histories on your Apple or Android devices. There you can read carefully curated histories of the region, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. In any case, thanks again for listening to the episode. We'll see you next month.